In Jesus' name, amen. All right. We are going to continue with the book of Daniel this morning. The last couple days, we have covered chapter 1 and 2. We did our promise flyover on day 1, which was, was really fun to do the whole book in 30 minutes, wasn't it? That was awesome. <laughs> um, those of you that haven't been in our class, there is a quick commentary on the book of Daniel up here. If you do not have one, um, you can raise your hand. Rochelle will give you one. Um, it is also on the website, I believe, right? It yes. got posted onto the website. Well, it's on the app. On the app. Okay, it's on the app. And it's kind of designed just to be a companion. Um, I got a little bit frustrated last week because all the chapters of Daniel are all my favorites, as I told you on the first day. Um, and I'm like, I can't cover them all. Especially 9, 10, and 11 are just, and 12. You know, they, they just kind of blow my mind. And it's a lot of the prophecy stuff, and it's, it's difficult to wade through without some historical background. The, the paper is just meant to be a companion. Um, some of the chapters I wrote a basic theme, uh, 9 and 11 especially, are a verse by verse. So read it verse by verse, and it will tell you who the king of the north is, who the king of the south is, who the woman is that's given in marriage, and the other woman that's given in marriage and manipulated. It'll give you all the details of that, and will make the chapters actually make more sense. So it's just for you, for your personal study. Um, if you want to be in it while we go through some of this stuff, it might be helpful, um, especially on Friday when we get into Daniel chapter 7 a little bit more. It's going to lay out chapter 7, so that will be in front of you. Um, other than that, is there any questions on any of that? All right. Today we're going to cover Daniel chapter 3. And I'm like, I want to do 3 and 4 the same day so I can actually get to some of my other favorite chapters, but there's just no way. We're going to have a lot of fun um, going through chapter 3. And my main theme is that I really want to look at how God pursues the man. All right? How he pursues people. And particularly Nebuchadnezzar. Yesterday we saw in Daniel chapter 2, um, when um, Daniel gave the interpretation of the dream, uh, Nebuchadnezzar responded with, no one shall speak against your God. Today we're going to see another response of Daniel in Daniel chapter 3 of Nebuchadnezzar and how his reaction is to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All right. So the last couple of days we've been talking about um, the Daniel in terms of a Hebrew exegesis or Hebrew study method. Does anybody remember the first level that we've been talking about? Peshat. Very good. Peshat is the surface meaning. Very good. The second level is remez. Remez is hints. Very good. The things that we're finding in, in the text. And I'm going to give you another remez today. I've been giving you a lot of them. I, I like remez. I haven't scratched the surface of Ramaz. I look at some of the Hebrew examples. I'm like, I have no idea where you got that. But the, the hints are the hidden things. We talked about numbers. We talked about letters being set up like a comic strip in individual words. Every word having 70 facets of meaning. Of meaning it being like a 70-faceted diamond. So those of you that think that um, you know the scriptures well, okay, now start studying each word and the facets of the diamond of each word. And there's, you see here the older people, especially, they'll say, I never get to the end of the study of the Bible. 
and the Ramez is, is something we can just dig deeper into. I'm going to give you a fun one today. It's probably not going to help you, but I just think it's really cool. If you go to the book of Genesis and find the first letter Tav, it's the, it's the last letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It's actually symbolized by a cross. And it's a symbol of the covenant, actually. Uh, it's interesting that these things came out back in the ancient Hebrew as well, isn't it? But you find the first Tav, which is in the, le- the, in the first word, Bereshit. And if you count 50 letters, you'll find the letter Vav. You count 50 more letters, you'll find the letter Resh. And you count 50 more letters, you'll find the letter He. It spells Torah in Hebrew. Not only is it the fir- every 50 letters for the for the first time, it actually repeats through the entire book and Exodus 2. And, and I actually checked Genesis after about chapter three or four. I got tired of doing it. I'm like, I get the point. Um, but, um, and I, I've been told, but I haven't checked it, that it actually goes backwards in the other books. <laughs> so you think about what God is actually placing in his word to verify. It, it kind of makes me think of like the watermark you put in a check. Like, this is actually a legal document. Like, Torah is, like, spelled every 50 letters through the Pentateuch. There's another Remez. Anybody else find that fascinating? (laughs) So if you get a chance, Q Bible won't help you because they put all the vowel letters in and some of the other uh, suffixes, which actually messes it up. Get a Hebrew source, and you can check it. Um, I've done it. It's kind of fun for a few minutes. If you're a numbers guy like Kendall... You might enjoy something like that more than I do, because I can't even add and subtract in my head. <laughs> so when it comes to counting and stuff, not really my thing, but it just gives more credence to God's word. I don't know anybody on earth who could actually do that and while writing wonderful, wonderful literature at the same time no. without the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Right. So Ramaz, what was the third, third level? Darash. Darash is the sermon. It's the inquiry. What are we learning from this passage? Finally, the fourth level is sowed. What's sowed? Holy Spirit. So we're going to go through and we're going to do this again with that style. And as we read through the chapter, we're going to do a lot of reading today. I apologize for that. I know that's not a good teaching method usually, um, but I don't see another way to do it. So Please don't fall asleep. Hang with me as we read a lot. We're going to do the Peshat level of just the surface. And I'm going to try my very, very best not to start preaching in the middle of it, okay? Um, And then we'll go back and we'll preach the sermon part. But I'm not going to promise you anything because I just get so excited. I know what I'm going to say later. And so it starts just kind of bubbling up and we get kind of excited. So forgive me if I do that. So um, (laughs) we're going to have fun today. All right, Um, Daniel chapter 3, starting in verse 1. And I got a nice wind companion again to turn my pages for me. All right, we are in 585 BC. So remember we started in chapter 1, 605. Chapter 2 was around 604. So these guys are probably in their 30s now. So some time's passed. So um, before we talked about them in their teenage years, and their teenage years actually set the direction for their entire life. Lice. So, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and is plain in the plain of Durba. I'm sorry, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, which is about 90 by um, 9 feet. Okay? So, just to give you a perspective, you could go. Um, how many have ever seen 
it's probably a bad example. Like an elevator, green elevator. They're around 100 to 140 feet. So think about as high as a grain elevator, okay? And only about nine feet wide. This thing is like, this thing's like the leg on a, a grain system. I'm talking farm now, I'm sorry. But um, <laughs> this thing's just super tall and super skinny. And it's a statue that's probably made of wood, actually covered in gold. They can actually have found a, a, a pedestal in the plain of Dura in Iraq that looks like it's about the right size for this. So there's actually archaeological evidence that this actually did exist. And we know it did because the Bible says so. So, <laughs> so it, he builds a statue, and King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried out to you, it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre, and symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So we have this, sex, this, this time when they're, they're, they're coming to this worship service. And notice it says all the people came from all over, especially the officials and the people from different provinces. And it's very important in this culture with the music. And it, just like it is for us today, when we come into worship services, music actually helps us to come into and become aware of the presence of God that's already around us. In that time, it would bring them to the aware of the presence of evil in some cases. And, you know, it's like they wouldn't have seen it as evil because um, we know that the enemy actually does have a, a form of power, nothing like our God, but they would be able to do different things, kind of like our psychics and stuff would do today. And they would do this to get them into the spiritual realm. It was very important to them. But it's also important to, to Nebuchadnezzar that all the people come there in a display of political unity. Because remember, there's people that he's conquering. He's bringing them to Babylon and resettling them, trying to make them into a one-world order. How many heard that, that um, term a lot lately? Yeah, absolutely. So you have all these people coming together to worship one man. Kind of reminds me of North Korea. Kim Jong-un, they actually sing praise songs to him. Anybody know that? Yes. They sing praise songs to him. And it actually cements, even though they're oppressed, it cements a political unity that it gives him absolute control. They say King, Kim Jong-un, and the people, some of the people believe this, I doubt they all do, they say that he controls the rain, you know? So it's like you have a man that's making himself the center of absolute control and absolute importance and absolute political unity in a one world system. All right. 
Verse 8. I was just going to say, in our culture, if you vote for the right guy, you can control the climate and the weather. If you vote for the right guy, you can control the climate. Well, yeah, there, there's, some of, there's some of that going on, isn't there? Yes, there is. <laughs> All right, verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery and symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now if you are ready at this time, you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace." And who is the God who will deliver you from my hand? Notice the anti-Semitism, right? There is, there is an anti-Semitic spirit that has gone through the ages. No group has been, been um, hurt and persecuted more than the Jews. And there's a reason for that. It's a reason is that Satan hates the Jewish people because it was through the Jewish people that his downfall was cemented in stone. Because it was through the Jews that Jesus came to save us. But I love this verse, though, because, you know, Nebuchadnezzar comes to the guys and he gives them a second chance. Nebuchadnezzar was not a dude of second chances. Not typically. And it gives us a clue to the attitude of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the court of the king. These guys were guys who were honorable men. And Nebuchadnezzar knew that. He didn't want to kill them. That's why he gave them a second chance. It gives them, it gives us an insight into how they live their lives in the court of the king. And we're going to talk a little more about that later. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, who is the God? And the guys, they, they actually answer this question. And Nebuchadnezzar is saying, who is the God who can stand against me? I'm the greatest God out there. And they answered him in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you. There's no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not... I think that's a key word right there. They didn't know the outcome. But if not, let, us, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. They had no need to answer. They knew that God was able 
And if they said, but they did not know the outcome, if God would walk them through the fire into eternity or walk them through the fire to an earthly victory, it did not matter. They were already men of decision who had made a decision that it did not matter what the outcome was. They knew that their God was able. Verse 19. I got to be careful not to preach too much because we got to do it in order. <laughs> Verse 19, verses through 23. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times, circle seven, just for the next section, more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command... The wind caught my page. Was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot... The flame, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, burned, bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. So they went into the fire. Now, if you have an Apocrypha Bible, um, it, this chapter is actually 100 verses. And at verse um, 24, it goes into verses 24 through 90 in the Apocrypha. And it gives the response of the young men. I don't know who took it out, but I disagree. <laughs> because this section, in my opinion, is the best section of the whole chapter. Um, and we're going to look at parts of it. And I'll read it until, um, until I feel like I should stop. Which might not be for a while, because it's amazing. <laughs> Yeah. Explain that what the Apocrypha is. Oh yeah, the Apocrypha is the writings, and um, it's things that I think are usually in the Catholic Bible. Um, it's the ancient. It's just other ancient writings concerning the Bible. So if you have an Apocrypha Bible, twenty-four through ninety is um, chap is part of chapter three. So in verse twenty-four of the Apocrypha, this is what it says, and I'm gonna. And I would encourage you to look up the whole thing later because it will blow your mind because it's just incredible. It says this, they walk about in the flames singing to God and blessing the Lord in the fire as Uriah stood up. I love they put this real name and prayed aloud. Blessed are you and praiseworthy, O Lord, the God of our fathers and glorious forever is your name for you. You're just in all you have done. All your deeds are faultless, all your ways right, and all your judgments proper. You have executed proper judgments in all that you have brought upon us and upon Jerusalem, the holy city of our fathers. By a proper judgment, you have done all this because of our sins. Notice the repentance. For we have sinned and transgressed by departing from you, and we have done every kind of evil. Your commandments we have not heeded or observed nor have we done as you ordered us for our good. Therefore, all you have brought upon us, all you have done to us, you have done by a proper judgment. You have handed us over to our enemies, lawless and hateful rebels, to an unjust king, the worst in the world. That's bold. 
Now we cannot open our mouths. We, your servants who revere you, have become a shame and a reproach. For your name's sake, do not deliver us up forever or make void your covenant. Do not take away your mercy from us for the sake of Abraham, your beloved Isaac, your servant, and Israel, your holy one, to whom you promised to multiply their offspring like the stars of heaven or the sand of the shore of the sea. For we are reduced, O Lord, beyond any other nation, brought low everywhere in the world this day because of our sins. We have in our day no prince, prophet, or leader, no holocaust, sacrifice, oblation, or incense, no place to offer first fruits and find favor with you. But with a contrite heart and humble spirit, let us be received. As though it were holocausts of rams and bullocks or thousands of fat lambs. So let our sacrifice be in your presence today. Sacrifice themselves. As we follow you unservedly, for those who trust in you cannot be put to shame. And now we follow you with our whole heart. We fear you and we pray to you. Do not let us be put to shame, but deal with us in your kindness and your great mercy. Deliver us by your wonders and bring glory to your name, O Lord. Let all those be routed who inflict evils on your servant. Let them be shamed and powerless and their strength broken. Let them not know that you alone are Lord God, glorious over the whole earth. Now the king's men who had thrown them in continued to stoke the furnace. The flames rose 49 cubits above the furnace and spread out burning the Chaldeans nearby. But the angel of the Lord went down to the furnace with Azariah and his companions, drove the fiery flames out of the furnace, and made the inside of the furnace as though it was dew-laden breeze were blowing through it. The fire in no way touched them or caused them pain or harm. Then these three men in the furnace with one voice sang, glorifying and blessing God. Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of our fathers, praiseworthy and exalted above all forever. And blessed is your holy and glorious name. Praiseworthy and exalted all above all for the ages. Blessed are you in the temple of your holy glory, praiseworthy and glorious above all forever. Blessed are you on the throne of your kingdom, praiseworthy and exalted above all forever. I'm not going to read the rest, but it goes on, continues in that vein. Think about what's going on here. These three men are thrown into a fiery furnace. And as they go in, the first thing that comes from their lips is praise. I guess I can't preach. I got to keep going. <laughs> We're going to talk about that later. <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> so in the fire, they praised God. Then verse 24 in our Bibles. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and he rose in haste and spoke saying to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king, said, look, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Jesus was in the fire. Most commentators will say this is actually what we call Christophany. It's a revelation of the Messiah in the Old Testament. There's actually two of them in Daniel. Chapter 10 is the other place. 
And so we actually see Jesus walking in the midst of the fire. And I got to stop preaching because we're going to get to this later. (laughs) Verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire and the satraps, administrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were the garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Catch that. Nebuchadnezzar spoke. He's a picture of Antichrist in the Babylonian kingdom. And Nebuchadnezzar said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're moving forward, aren't we? First of all, we can't speak against this God. We're moving forward. Now Nebuchadnezzar is saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel. I don't believe it was an angel. I believe it was Jesus. And delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word and yield their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I love this. I make a decree that the, any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces. I don't think God was all for this, but we're on the right track. <laughs> and their houses shall be made an ash heap, because there is no other God who can deliver like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. I can just see the liberal commentators or the liberal philosophies. Your God thinks we should cut people in pieces. Well, we got we to we look at who's talking here. <laughs> All right. That's the Peshat. <coughs> the Peshat is the plain meaning. Um, I think we hit, hit it pretty good. Any questions there so far? All right. What's the remez? What's a remez that's obvious that picks up, comes out? What is it? Um, yeah, that's actually really good. I didn't think about that, but we'll, we're gonna, let's talk about that. All right. That's really good. Okay, so when we think about God, there's actually a, a, a Jewish saying about, about God. When we look at Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Does anybody know what the Hebrew word for God in Genesis 1.1 is? Yahweh. It is not Yahweh. Okay. Elohim. Elohim is plural. If you want to read it literally, it says, in the beginning, the God created the heavens and the earth. <laughs> Have you have a problem with that? No. It's Elohim. Now, let's go to the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. The word is Ehad. Does anybody know what Ehad means? I just said it. One, right? But it's more than one. It's the same one that we see in the garden where Adam and Eve became one flesh. Okay? In this Ehad, they became one. It'd be like it'd be like saying that a basketball team played as Ehad. They played as one. So when we see the Shema in the beginning, one, I'm sorry, hero is of the Lord our God is one. 
It actually means he is unified in diversity. Okay? So one of the ideas in, in, I don't know if it came out of the Hebrews or it came out of the Christian faith, I'm not sure. It says that in the garden, um, God actually zimzummed. And zimzum means to make room. And they said he zimzummed or made room for a fourth dance partner. So I think, I think that's a pretty good, good remez there. So anybody else see another remez? How about the height of the statue? What's the height? 60 by 6. What? Yes, 90 feet. But in Hebrew, it's 60 by 6. What's the significance of 6? It's the number of man. And it's interesting because when you see this, I'll put the answers up there. 60 by 6, Daniel, whether it was exactly 60 cubits by 6 cubits, didn't really matter. Remember, it's meaning the triumph's detail. doesn't mean the details are wrong, but the meaning's more important. What Daniel is saying is that this statue that's claiming to be God is actually only man. It actually falls short of God. There's one more that I can think of. What is it? Seven times. Seven times. What's seven represent? Number of God. The seven is representing the purifying of God of these men. So it's actually, we have, we have man throwing him into the fire, but he sh- he's actually falling short of what God is doing in this situation. Is there any other messes I missed? Anybody can see. I love that four. Oh my goodness, that's so good. <laughs> Anything else? All right. Ramez. Darash. Now we get to have fun. All right. Chapter 3. Remember, Darash is the inquiry of the sermon. Chapter 3 is actually a guide on how to live in two kingdoms. All right. As people, it is actually required of us that we both live in the kingdom of man and also be in the kingdom of God. And when those two kingdoms conflict, which kingdom are we going to be loyal to? God. Yeah, God's kingdom. Is that easy? No. No. So how are we going to live in the kingdom of man, in the kingdom of God, and to put our... We can say this is, this is our home, but it's not our home. So we put our allegiance in another place. So how are we going to do that? Let's look at the example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. First of all, they were targeted and accused. When you come into a conflict between two kingdoms, remember the kingdoms of men, you know, Nebuchadnezzar saw them as having value, but God saw them as beasts. And when you come into a kingdom that is a beast, that is dominated by a spiritual entity that is anti-God, there is going to be some pushback. All right? So we see originally that says that they denounced the Jews. There was an ancient anti-Semitism, a hatred that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden for the sons of men, and especially for the 
for the people that Messiah came from. I also believe that in our day, there's an anti-Jesusism, right? And if you notice in culture, you know, when you have like a public prayer, people have no problem with praying in God's name. But when the moment you say Jesus, we got an issue, don't we? There's something about that name, Jesus, that just makes people cringe, makes people feel uncomfortable because Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the one who takes away our sin. Jesus is the one who defeats these kingdoms. So it's kind of like when you bring up Jesus as the rock who crushed the feet of the statue, it's kind of like bringing up the enemy in, the, in, the, in this kingdom, in this world. So there's an anti-Jesusism as well. John 16 Verse 1 says this, these, this is Jesus speaking, these things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They'll put, oh, hold on. Hmm. Okay, maybe that is it. They'll put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. Then Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace in the world. You will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Does Jesus promise to rescue us from the fire every time? No, there's lots of martyrs. Look at William Tyndale, burned at the stake. He doesn't promise that. These three men did not have the promise of physically coming through the fire. They knew that God would spiritually bring them through the fire, that God would walk with them into the fire. I think of William Tyndale. He died burning at the stake, singing praises to God. God was walking with him through the fire. God promises that. But he, in this verse, he says, I will give you what? Peace. He doesn't promise to deliver us from every trial in a way that is physical. But he does promise to walk through with us. He does promise to give us peace in the midst of the storm. These young men said, even if not, if he doesn't rescue us, we still won't do it. Because they knew that God would be walking with them through that fire. They had targeted their position. They were men over the affairs of Babylon. Remember from chapter 1, how they distinguished themselves honoring God in the midst of an evil king and honoring the king at the same time, and they were actually promoted at a young age. They had built position over the affairs of Babylon, and my guess is these guys are just jealous. And they're going to attack him. And they're prospering. They're prospering in the kingdom. Jeremiah 29 says this in verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, whom I have a cause to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses, dwell in them, plant gardens, do well. These guys were doing really well. Remember, they're officials in the Babylonian kingdom. And now they're starting to face some persecution. And these guys, I know they were doing this. In verse 7, it says, Seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it, for the peace that they have. You also have peace. And then you have that favorite verse um, in 29, 11, 
for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, give you hope and a future. Do you know what that was in the context of? It was in the context of being in captivity. These guys, they're doing that really, really well. But even when we come into a place where we are, we seem that everything is going good, we've, we've come into a place of position, we've come into a place of honor and respect, the trials come our way, does not mean we lose the peace. Jesus said, and God said, that we will have peace in the trials. And in the end, we know that we can live by his faith, and his faith knows the outcome and knows the good that will come out of it. Point two, they were bent fully towards God with unmovable faith. These men were commanded to bow down to an evil statue. So that was, I don't know if I want to call a statue evil, it's just wood and gold. But it was bowed down to a statue of an evil man. And they said, no, we will obey God. We will have no other gods before him. How many of you know that when we compromise, even if it's in our heart, that that's not the right thing. When we actually physically bow, we are yielding to another God. Um, I, I love this example. In 1904, there was a guy who had a really good name by the name of Seth Joshua. <laughs> he lived in Wales. And he started to pray for a revival to come out of the coal mines of Wales. Does anybody know what I'm talking about yet? Okay. And the Welsh revival. Very good. So, so this name, Seth, this guy Seth Joshua starts praying for a man, for a revival to come out of the, the coal mines of, of Wales. And at the same time, there was this man by the name of Evan Roberts. And Evan Roberts was, was an uneducated man. He couldn't afford an education, but he wanted to be a preacher. And he sought God with his whole heart and devotion all the time. He heard that Seth Joshua was preaching um, another city. And so he decided to go and hear the pre- go to the prayer meeting. It was an uneventful prayer meeting. But in the prayer meeting, Seth Joshua prayed a very simple prayer. And the prayer was, Oh, Lord, bend me. All day, Evan Roberts, this was in the morning session, Evan Roberts just, just dwelt on that prayer. Oh, Lord, bend me. And it just, just kind of just welled up with inside of him. And at the evening prayer meeting, it was just kind of, I, I just imagine it the way it was described, one of those, those boring prayer meetings you go to and everybody's just like kind of mumbling a prayer. And all of a sudden, Evan Roberts, who was desiring the second work of grace, the infilling, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, just stood up and just began to yell and scream, Oh, Lord, bend me. Oh, Lord, bend me. Please, Lord, bend me, bend me, bend me. And it says that he was immediately filled with the Holy Spirit. Instead of going to, he was going to try to go to some grammar school classes, he immediately went home with a word from the Lord that all of Wales would be in revival within two weeks. So he went home, he told his parents, I'm going to preach to the youth tonight. And in two weeks, 
we will be in revival and 100,000 souls will come to know the Lord. So they thought he was loony. It was, a, it was a faith that was just so rock solid. And she, the, his parents were like, we don't know of any meetings. He hadn't asked the pastor yet. He announced it before he even asked. He knew it was going to happen. His brother was there, and he, had lost, he wasn't able to return to work because he had just lost his sight. And Evan Roberts went up to his brother and said, the Lord needs you, you'll see, sure enough. And it says he was immediately restored to sight. That He went up to the pastor and he asked for some time after the evening service that he could preach to the youth. 17 people showed up for his revi- first revival meeting, four of which were his own family. And he preached that night late into the night. And he asked this, if there is some sin or sins in the past not confessed, we cannot have the Spirit search us. We must remove all known sin. Two, remove all doubt. Three, total surrender to the Holy Spirit. And four, make a public confession of Christ. Evan Roberts, in a style that was not like that day, went up and down the aisles to every single person in that auditorium requesting confession of Christ. By like two or three in the morning, all 17 had confessed Christ. The next night, not much. By the end of the week, 65. By the end of the week. Far cry from 100,000. But there was, a, there was a curiosity going on because the youth that attended that service had a complete and dramatic change in their lives and the parents were getting interested. That Sunday um, night, they had another meeting and the auditorium was packed. It was full of people. And Evan Roberts preached again that night, asking for a confession of Christ. By the end of the week, the whole city was in revival. And through that revival, about 100,000 people came to know the Lord. The city of Wales, or the, the city in Lahore, Wales, was so changed that the police became unemployed because they were no longer needed. The taverns closed. And even the mules in the mines had to be retrained because they weren't cussed at anymore and were treated with respect. <laughs> the Spirit of God changed that whole city. But because there was a man who would say, Oh Lord, bend me. Bend me in the direction of God. Later on, a guy by the name of, I gotta, I gotta look at it, I forgot his name. Um, Smalley, was a, Joseph Smalley, visited the revival in Wales. And he took it back to Los Angeles and began to be praying for the revival fires. His meeting began, was, was started to be filled with the Shekinah glory, the glory cloud. At the same time, there was a black man on the other side of the town um, by the name of William Seymour. He was also praying for revival. And those two men came together and we had Azusa Street. And now, let's see, what was this thing? 600 million people can trace some of their spiritual heritage to Azusa Street. Because one man had the courage 
to say, Lord, bend me. One man had that courage. These, these three boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were so fully bent towards God, it was impossible for them to bend the other way to man. It's like steel. If you take it and bend it one way and bend it the other way, what starts to happen? It breaks. If you take a piece of wood and you steam bow it and try to bend it the other way, what happens? It breaks. It will not bend the other direction. These boys were so bent in that direction. May that be us with the revival fires of the Holy Spirit. I don't know how many of you realize it, but 40 years ago in Pigeon, Michigan, a prophecy was given that in approximately 40 years, there would be a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit right here in the thumb. I actually have it in my Bible, a copy of I carry it. It came out of Salem United Methodist Church from Pam's Church. And I believe that maybe there's some spiritual heritage in that with maybe the Kalendas, who were part of our community about 100 years ago. Their great-great-grandson, Daniel Kalender, has taken over Christ for all nations, which brings millions to Christ in Africa. And they, they were actually, the roots are here. I don't know all the history of that, but I know the roots are, are here in the thumb. So, I believe with all of my heart that we have to steward that revival that is coming. And that we have to get our place ourselves to a place where we will not be moved by anything. That we are bent in the direction of God. These boys could not bow to a, a foreign idol because they had a bend that was so committed to the Lord. All right. Point three. We're, we're almost halfway done. I don't know what time it is. <laughs> They passed through the fire. All right. How many of us come to the storm or come to a place of decision for God and we stand at the fire and we look at it, but we're not willing to take a step into it? You know, I think this is out of precept. I think this is a good way to summarize it. How might these three Jewish boys have rationalized it? Some might call it situational ethics. Bowing or living by the dictum. When in Babylon, do as the Babylonians do. They might have rationalized it by saying, we'll bow down physically, but not in our hearts. How many have heard that before? Anybody? How many have done that before? I'm raising my hand. Right? We've been there. We've done that. We remain standing up in our hearts. They may have reasoned that the king had been so good to them, it would be ungrateful not to bow. They may have justified bowing, reasoning that, that, they, were, that they were being forced against their will to bow. And for that reason, God would forgive them. I'm going to use that excuse. Yeah, I, I don't have a choice. God will forgive me. Oh, not these guys. Hey, I keep losing my spot. <laughs> After all, no one in Jerusalem would ever know whether they bowed or not. The age-old favorite is, everyone is bowing down. Or they may have reason. If we don't, we'll be killed. And God needs us. He needs me. Is that true? No, he's God. God needs us in these positions of power to help his people. Let's be honest. For we all know that when we want to compromise, 
We can always find an excuse. On the other hand, when you set your heart to obey God, you don't need excuses. Imagine how they must have felt as they stood alone among hundreds of thousands of bowed bodies. I think about the other night in the tabernacle, that boy that stood up in the dorm room that our speakers shared about. Hundreds of guys, I stand alone. I will stand for morality. How many have the courage to do that? Some in there in, whoops, I lost my spot again. Oh. Maybe I wasn't supposed to read the rest. The scrolls went way up. Some in the vicinity undoubtedly must have shouted, bow down or you'll burn. We do that even as Christians, trying to protect our brothers and sisters. Just, just go along with it because we need you. No, I'll tell you the truth, my beloved. God does not need you. God gives you the privilege of partnering with him. It's a privilege that's for our good. God doesn't need us, but he chooses to use us. And if, if God has, if God's will for you is to stand up for his kingdom and ultimately die, then he, that is his purposes, not our own to figure out. That's for his purpose. Another popular saying is, discretion is the better part of valor. It sounds really poetic, but it just means you compromise. That's a great, great quote. Discretion is the better part of valor. I I think that's really, really, really good. And that is really unwise. Yes. Valor, Valor is standing up with uncompromised values. They also had extreme faith. And I believe that this came out of their testimony of their people. They looked to the Red Sea. They looked to the sun standing still. Jericho. Look back on what God's done before. But I'm going to tell you this also, beloved. Don't try to reduplicate what God's done in the past. I love Amos chapter 5. And I wasn't going to do this. Amos chapter 5 says, Do not seek Gilgal. Do not seek Beersheba. Do not... Another city that he lists there. And he says, seek the Lord and live. All of those places were places that God did mighty works at. But every single one of them became a place of idolatry. We look to the things that God has done in the past to give us strength, but we don't try to go back to them. We trust God to do a new and mighty work. God is always moving forward. The Spirit is always moving forward, always expanding and these boys had no, no story about um, going through the fire to, to help them out with this one. But they knew what God had done in the past, and they knew that his spirit could carry them through. When we go back and try to reduplicate what God has done in the past, it's actually idolatry. And we see that those places became places of idolatry. God is doing a new thing. Don't seek the acts of God. Seek the ways of God. It says in the Bible that, that the children that Moses, the children of Israel knew the acts of the Lord, but Moses knew his ways. These boys knew God's ways. His acts are really, really good. But to actually know his ways is much, much better. Because we can have the acts of the Lord all we want. 
but we don't know the ways of the Lord, we can fall right back into our old patterns. That's a sermon. Yeah, it is. It's a good one. <laughs> also, they were saved in the previous chapter. Remember your testimony. Cling to your testimony. I love Isaiah 43, 1-4. And I think this really gave those guys some hope in this. It says this, But now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, remember the stories last night of the Jordan River or two nights ago, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. And when we talk about walking through the fire, we'll either not be burned physically or we'll walk with God into eternity, just as William Tyndale did. Nor shall the flame scorch you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in your place, since you were precious in my sight. You have been honored, and I have loved you. Therefore, I will give men for you and people for your life. What a promise. God will be with us wherever we go. They had total trust and confidence in the in the works of the Lord. Point four, Jesus went with them. You know, I said, mentioned earlier, this is a Christophany. It says that he looks like the sons of the God, the son of man. Who is that? It's Jesus, right? We know that, it, that, that Nebuchadnezzar called him an angel, but Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know about Jesus or Messiah. It's Jesus walked through the fire with them. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6 says this, Be strong and good of courage. Do not fear nor be afraid. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. We all see this in Joshua 1.9. He will not leave you nor forsake you. That's all I'm going to read to that one. Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Hebrews 13, 5 through 6. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So he may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What shall man do to me? What can man do to us? He can destroy our physical bodies, but it is the Lord's will that will always prevail. Yes, sir? I was just going to say, um, if you really believe in eternal life, you should never compromise. That means that you shouldn't be afraid of physical death. That's right. You we're, always have eternal life. We're always never afraid of physical death. Eternal life is certain. This, this world is not our home. Right. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. I love an example also from Jonah. Now, this is, a, this is a far stretch, and I love this example. When we talk about going through things, God sees things a little bit differently. And God, I believe, sees our repentance and our turning is one of the greatest things we ever walk through. The ability to humble ourselves before the Lord. Now, when Jonah went to Nineveh, it says that the people repented. 
and then sackcloth and ashes. In Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, it says, and probably in your Bible, so God relented from um, the disaster or calamity he was going to bring upon them. Anybody ever look up in Hebrew? It actually says this, and the commentator, they say a lot of Bible translators translate it that way because they don't know what to do with it, because it doesn't fit their theology. But if you want to look at the, the original writing, it actually says this. God repented from the evil he was about ready to do from them, do to them. Can God repent from evil? He can? can does God do evil? That's, that's tough. Can God repent from evil when he's perfect? The answer is no. But the Bible clearly says, and it actually says this in um, the book of Exodus as well, when God doesn't destroy the Israelites because Moses asked him not to, the same phrase occurs there. It says, God repented from evil. And the, the rabbis never knew what to do with the verse. And so what they said is, is that God loved people who repented so much and, and he just had so much compassion for them is that God would actually repent with them. Isn't that beautiful? That when we come to the place, the end of ourselves, and humble ourselves before the Lord, that God looks on that with such compassion and mercy, that when you bow at the altar of forgiveness, that God bows down right with you and repents with you. Because he doesn't want you to go through it alone. So likewise, as God goes through our trials, our fiery trials, goes through the waters, God also goes with you to the altar and repents with you. So beautiful. Love it. <laughs> John 1, 16-17 says that God gives us grace for grace. He gives us the grace that we need to walk through the, the trials of life. Yeah? Well, I was just thinking about what you were talking about. God repenting from evil. Yeah. I almost, my first thought was, well, what if you go back to the original Hebrew meeting? Did it have a, was it misinterpreted possibly? Mm -mm. No. Mm -mm. So that just seems like. No, the, Jew, the Jews look at that too. Yeah. The King James actually gets it right. Yeah, the original King James. Yeah. Who can recognize evil more than God? Mm -hmm. And I love the pattern prayer that Jesus gave us. At the conclusion, lead us not into temptation, O Lord, but deliver us from evil. That's right. He delivers us from evil by walking through it with us. Very good. Love it. <laughs> Philippians 4.9 says that he promises us peace as we walk through it. I love what... I love what Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. And then he goes on later in verse 9. He says, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. No matter what you're going through, Paul was in a Roman prison writing these words. He says, the peace of God will go with you through it all. Point five, they praise God. I believe this is key. I just read a great book. Um, I'm going to write this one down. It's a really little book that you can read in about 40 minutes. It's called Prison to Praise. A really, really good book. And it talks about praising God for the hard times. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 says this, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything, what word's that? Everything. 
give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. The will of God in Christ Jesus is to give praise and thanks in what? Everything. But what if my wife leaves me? Praise him. What if my child dies? Praise him. What if my family split up? Praise him. Because the praises of God is the key to your breakthrough. When those boys are thrown into the furnace, they immediately came into praise for God, and God was right there with them inhabiting their praises. I love this, that they were probably, I imagine these boys being prepared for this trial ahead of time. I go back to King David in 1 Samuel chapter 30. It says that David was in a position where he had just been... um, the, all his people at Ziklag had been taken by the Amalekites. He had allied with the Philistines. The Philistines had rejected him. And Saul was trying to kill him. And all of his people were so mad at him at this time that they were trying to stone him. That was David's fiery furnace. And what does it say? But David strengthened himself in the Lord. These boys have been strengthening themselves in the Lord all through this trial through praise. Uh, Psalm chapter 18 is actually given as an example of the psalm that David penned while in this situation. And it says this, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my strength in whom I will trust. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So I shall be saved from my enemies. Everybody was David's enemies when he wrote this. And yet God praised God. No, David praised God knowing what God had said about his life. Knowing that God was going to bring him through the trial. And even through the greatest storm of his life, he gave him praise. Faith is refined by a trial that is more precious than gold. We read that yesterday, um, 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. And it says, if you rejoice Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Those trials that you come up against, that is actually the refining fire that will make you into pure gold. It is key walking in the spirit what are you going to do when the thing when things get hot when the furnace is heated up are you going to stand at the fire and bend back towards man or are you going to be so bent towards god that you're going to only thing you can do is walk through the fire knowing he's with you that is the kind of people that we are looking for Number six, they came into a place of extreme blessing. It's like 2 Chronicles 20. How many think how many here have 2 Chronicles 20 as their favorite chapter? Anybody? One of my one of my top three, I would say. Um, 2 Chronicles 20. It's when it's when um, it's when Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat? Oh, I can't even remember. It was when Jehoshaphat was, I believe, was going into battle, and the, they were against complete completely outnumbered. And it says that before they went into battle, they set the Ark of the Covenant and they sent people to praise the Lord. I'm going to go there because I have notes in my Bible on this. 
And this is actually really cool. If I can find Chronicles, you know, I don't even know the books in the Bible in order. It's something I just never got down. So I'm always thumbing looking for them. It's right after First Chronicles. Oh, thanks. Appreciate it. <laughs> Samuel King's Chronicles. Yes. All right. And he uses these different forms of praise. Remember, they're going against an army that they have no chance of defeating. And they said, the first thing they said, let's believe. All right? We believe that God has given us the victory. And it says that the, they, the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with voices loud and high. Now, in the Bible, there's many different words for praise. And they're all translated praise. But the one that they use is halal. And halal is the strongest form of praise in the whole Bible. It actually means to act like a madman before the Lord. To go wild and crazy. This is, the, this is when the guys go, you know, they're jumping up and down, and they got an army in front of them that they have no chance to stand against. Okay, five minutes. We're, we're, go, we're doing good. We're almost done. So they praise the Lord. Then it says they, they tehillah. Or that's another praise. It's a proclamation of God's excellence. And then they also kadab, or they bow low before the God, Lord. They're doing all these forms of praise, all these positions of praise, knowing that God has got it. And when they came against them, they found that the army was already dead. And they came into what they called the Valley of Baraka, or the Valley of Blessing. These boys came into the Valley of Blessing. They came into the Valley of Blessing because they had honored the Lord, and now they are being honored in the kingdom as well. Isn't that interesting? The very king that sought to kill them, because they honored God, actually promoted them to a higher place. Number seven, last point before we do uh, sowed. A fully committed life demands praise from others. Now, when we fully commit ourselves to the Lord, we also come into a position where we can actually serve in this world in a way that is actually superior to those who do not. Even if we have to stand in some trials, if we stand firm with honor, these boys acted with honor. They said, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, oh, Nebuchadnezzar. We wish, we wish we didn't have to do this, but we have to stand with God. They honored that man through the whole thing. But they're like, even if he doesn't deliver us, we, we, can't, we, we can't bow to your God. We can't do it. It doesn't mean that we're like, go to our leaders and say, oh, this leader's from hell, that we're going to condemn him. No, 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 please do not do that. We need to honor our leaders because by honoring them, even when we're standing in opposition because it comes against the Lord our God, that will give us the key to those kingdom to actually have an influence in their lives. When we put our leaders down, we're actually closing the doors to influence. These boys honored Nebuchadnezzar even through this great trial. Can we do that? That's such a hard thing to do. Can we honor our authorities even while standing from God? Honor. You'll never, you'll never reach anybody for the gospel by condemning them or putting them down or hurting them. You have to stand with honor and respect in all circumstances. 
sowed. What's the Holy Spirit saying to you? This thing working still? It's maybe I'm just not hearing it. What's the Holy Spirit saying to you as you go through this chapter? What are you hearing God say? Is there anything that just comes to mind that just jumped at you? The Holy Spirit. Yes. Pray for our leaders in our country. Okay, good. Pray, Pray for our leaders in our country daily. When we honor our leaders, even if they're wicked, it can give us the keys to the nation. It's good. Anybody else hearing anything? What's the Holy Spirit saying to you in this chapter? Yeah. Respectfully stand for righteousness. Good. Respectfully stand for righteousness. It might cost us our life in this culture today. It might cost us our life. And we see that direction coming, don't we? It's here. It's here. And we need to stand respectfully in honor, not screaming at our leaders, but honoring them, praying for them, loving them, even when we don't agree. Nebuchadnezzar was not a good dude. He was the guy who's bashing babies' heads in rocks. And yet they've honored him and they respect him. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Uh What our our leaders are doing to our children. And we, we don't stand for that. We stand firmly against it. But yet we still honor the position Honor the person, love them, pray for them, seek their peace, and let God and the Holy Spirit do the rest. Don't you hear him? Yes, sir? No compromise. No compromise. I love that. So easy to compromise. You're going to have your heart bent first towards God. When it's bent towards God, it doesn't go the other direction. It's gonna. It'll break you if it does. You can't do it. This doesn't work. Yeah. I never heard that before. That Lord bend to me, mm-hmm. because uh, I remember back when, twelve years old, we had a vespers altar out here yep. beyond that youth sign between there and the youth the youth uh, center. Mm-hmm. And I remember when that altar call came. And what, how did we commit our lives to Christ? We bend our knees before right. him and commit everything into him. Mm-hmm. And then that, you know, you must be born again. That's what bending is about. It's regeneration and a new beginning. And uh, I love that. I would never heard, Lord, bend me. Mm-hmm. And people seeking God. He will reveal himself to them. And in our culture today, after all that's going on, how bending a knee before this or that can be very significant. Yes. I'm looking for something. Here it is. <laughs> this book, I read it a while ago. Top 10, I'd say I've read. Trail of Fire, it's about the revivals. And that story is in this book. And I read this several years ago, and that prayer, bend me, has been on my heart ever since. Bend me in the direction of God. Highly recommend it. Trail of Fire by Daniel Norris. Highly recommend. Anything else? All right, let's end with this. Charles Spurgeon said this. If standing before the heart, searching God at this time, 
You cannot say, it is true. How should you act? If you cannot say that you take Christ's cross and are willing to follow him at all hazards, then hearken to me and learn the truth. Do not make a profession at all. Do not talk about baptism or the Lord's Supper, nor of joining of, of church, nor being a Christian. For if you do, you will lie against your own soul. If it be not true that you renounce the world's idols, do not profess that it is so. It is unnecessary that a man should profess to be what he is not. It is a sin of superrogation, which is the act of reforming more than is required by duty or obligation, a superfluity, I love his language, of naughtiness. (laughs) If you cannot be true to Christ, if if your coward heart is recreant or unfaithful to duty, to the Lord, do not profess to be his disciple. I beseech you, he that is married to the world, I love this, he that is married to the world or flint-hearted or hard-hearted had better return to his house for he is of no service in this war.